and welcome to The Worst Person in the Room. I'm your host, Teresa Francesca. I'm returning from my October hiatus. Happy birthday to me, by the way. With an episode with a local reverend. (laughs) The honest truth is I cannot say the word reverend or think of someone I know being in like a position of authority like this, despite the fact that I know like several ministers slash pastors slash reverends slash I actually don't know the difference between any of those things, BT dubs. But it just like makes me burst into giggles to say that. There are a lot of cool stories in this episode that Shane tells. Like some are just like basically history lessons or Bible story retellings because I don't know the stories of the Bible. Um, The prodigal son, for instance. And then the second half of this episode, we get like kind of intense and I feel like I start talking a lot and kind of go, go toward things that like are they're kind of like big stories in my life but i haven't like recorded them (laughs) before (laughs) i was gonna try to cut this episode like i have most of my episodes into two but i really couldn't find a good halfway point for this one and really like a lot of it is like pretty cohesive and i wanted to keep it as a whole so i'm gonna leave it and have it be like a big jumbo sized at least for what i've put out so far jumbo sized episode of about an hour and a half. So I hope you like our our stories that we tell today. Um, let's get into it. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Do I, you, okay. Oh, um, Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, I am the Reverend Shane Montoya. I'm the associate pastor for faith formation and outreach at Edwards Church in Framingham. And I've also been Teresa, friends with Teresa with, how long have we been friends? Four years? Five years? Five years. Okay. You want to tell me some, some like overarching things about you as a human being and then sure. dig in? So, um, let's see. About me in particular, um, I, I guess I could start with my childhood as we all, as we like to do. Um, I grew up as the uh, as the youngest of six children. Um, I was born in Miami, Florida, and grew up there until about the age of uh, eight. Um, maybe it was ten. Ten. Um, and then my father had passed away in 1994, and my mother had passed away in 1996. So when I was quite young, I moved up to Charlotte, North Carolina to live with my with the youngest sister uh, in my family, who's uh, 19 years older than me, and um, grew up in a small town north of Charlotte uh, named Davidson, um, which is really famous for the college, Davidson College, mm-hmm. which most humans in America, probably not you, Teresa, know because of sports. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> that's why I said you probably don't know about it. Considering my my impression of your knowledge of sports ball is that it's called sports ball. What are spurts? I don't know. (laughs) There's a spurts. But for the other listeners here out there, uh, Davidson is most famous for Steph Curry, who went there while I was there. He's a very famous basketball player. Um, He's the one who uh, Trump got mad at because he refused the White House invitation. Um, And so Trump threw a hissy fit and was like, no. I don't want anybody in your team to come to the White House. Harumph. Thank you. I don't want an invitation. <laughs> yeah, basically is how that conversation went down. 
but I, I grew up there uh, and went to college there. So I lived there from when I was 10 till I was about 22 uh, or 21. Um, for those of you who are doing the math, that was 2008 when I uh, graduated from college. And uh, oh, yeah. the best year to graduate. Yes, the best year for to graduate from college. Although um, in in May it wasn't things hadn't hit quite as oh, bad yeah. um, as they would in the fall. Yeah, so I actually um, I had been thinking about becoming some sort of history professor or something like that, but my grades weren't good enough to get into grad school. So instead, I went to business school. Everyone's silver medal, <laughs> right? Yeah, basically, um, and did a, a master of arts in management degree which um, might have been the only thing more useless during that time than any other graduate degree because um, the the one scene I remember was being in finance class. And our professor said, um, you know, I'm going to teach you this method for evaluating a stock price for how to calculate it based on like dividends and like all these other financial things. But I will warn you, this formula doesn't actually work right now. Like it doesn't accurately tell you what's happening in the market. (laughs) Like it's just like things are so out of whack. So um, I spent about a a year unemployed, then ended up through networking contacts, getting a job in Dallas, Texas, where uh, I worked for the Dallas public library. Started off as in a grant funded position working uh, with a program called Every Child Ready to Read, which helped give parents, especially lower-income parents, the skills to be able to have their kids ready to read by the time they hit uh, kindergarten. Not that they should be teaching their kids before kindergarten, but they should. children who know their ABCs going into ki- kindergarten, the study showed they have a much higher uh, reading level at third grade. When do kids actually learn to read? Because I don't remember not knowing how. Most so most kids I believe learn in usually kindergarten through first grade. Okay. Um, the first time we really study reading um, or measure it is in third grade usually. Okay. Uh, but usually kids learn by first-ish grade. You look confused. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm just trying to. Yeah, this is a thing I've thought about because I don't remember not knowing how to read, which seems normal because there are a lot of like not super fully formed memories before the age of five. So I've wondered occasionally, I'm like, I don't know how or when I learned to read because it was before school. Yeah. And, and if you, as I almost certain you did grow up in a household with lots of books and reading and that, well, let's put it this way. Did your parents read? Um, yeah, they, they could read. Well, no, but did they read, actually read for pleasure? Like, did you, do you remember seeing them like oh. pick up a book and read? Yeah, my my mom was super into, you know, Stephen King and his related Airsats cousins and um, Gene M. All books and stuff a lot in the 90s. So, yeah, that's actually one of the big um, contributing factors to having a child want to learn to read is seeing their parents read um, and actually doing the act of reading because children love imitating their parents. It's how they learn. So if they see the parents doing something that they enjoy, then the children will assume that they will enjoy it too. But um, so I I worked in that job for about a year and uh, the grant was running out. So um, luckily I got transferred into a position just working in a library in a branch library. 
So I worked at two different uh, libraries in East Dallas. Um, and it was around that time that I, um, so to back up a little bit, um, given that I'm a pastor, I didn't actually ever go to church as a kid. Apparently I was baptized, so I will say that so that my denomination doesn't go weird. Um, <laughs> but yes, I, I was baptized, but given that my parents are deceased, uh, none of my siblings actually remember which church it was in. If it was in a Methodist church that I went to preschool in, a Catholic church that my father liked, or the United Church of Christ church that my mom <laughs> liked. Um, what a great coin flip. A three-sided coin flip. <laughs> yes, the three-sided coin. One memory I have is going to church when I was very young and then getting really, really upset and throwing a hissy fit because I missed Ren and Stimpy. Relatable. Back then, and I forget the shows, but there was three shows on on Sunday mornings on Nickelodeon. I think it was, what was the Doug Funny show? What was that called? The one? Doug. Doug. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. So Doug, and I want to say it might have been Rocco's Modern Life. And then Ren and Stimpy was like this holy trio of cartoons that I had to watch like every single Sunday or else I threw a hissy fit. Well, I like it. You had something holy on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then, yeah, and I don't remember going to church after that. I went to Roman Catholic Church for one year as a freshman in high school because nobody knows what they're doing when they're a freshman in high school. And also there was a cute girl at the Catholic (laughs) Church. I was going to ask the motivation. I'm like, okay, that sounds like motivation. (laughs) Um, I'm actually still friends with her. Um, She came to the wedding. Yay. To my wedding. Um, She's cool people. And uh, so in Dallas, though, um, Dallas is the type of city where socially the second question that people will ask you is what church you go to. And if you don't have a ready answer, um, and you can only say I'm looking for so long. um, um, (laughs) I'm undeclared. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, you don't want to do anything settled that would presume that you didn't have a church. Because if you did, they would invite you to their church. Oh, no. And often their church was something like, and I really was invited once to um, First Baptist Dallas, which is the uh, church of Pastor Robert Jeffress, who regularly appears on Fox News as a Trump supporter and is on his evangelical council. It's also the place where they debuted the Make America Great Again worship song, which is available for purchase, and you can play in your church on one license. (laughs) Um, Yes, I am just as shocked and horrified as you are. Um, I don't want it. Unsubscribe. (laughs) Of course, the funniest thing about that worship service is that one of the other songs they played during that special 4th of July service was This Land is Your Land. Mm. Which is a socialist anthem by Woody Guthrie. So I'm not sure self-awareness is one of the high point or or, uh, strong suits of this church. But anyway, so going there, um, I had been in in high school, I had been a little bit of an internet atheist um, and a libertarian. Oh, Um, oh dear. Yeah, I've gotten better. You've come so far. I've gotten better. Goodness. (laughs) But anyway, so I needed a church, so I had heard about the UUs and um, said, sure, I'll go. Um, And I um, started going to First Unitarian Church of Dallas, which is about a 1,000 members. Um, So That's a lot. (laughs) Very big for a UU church. 
and I, I'm going into this partly because it kind of defines the next part of my my life. Um, I met my now wife Shannon there. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, well, first I got involved in teaching Sunday school, which is something I had never done, and um, after about a year there, I got involved in teaching Sunday school. I taught a uh, middle schooler, so sixth and seventh graders, about the revolutionary life of Jesus. And it was very cool, actually. It was a good curriculum, and I still keep in touch with the other Sunday school teachers. Then I started uh, getting involved in young adult ministry, so ministry for folks in their 20s and 30s. Churches, especially progressive churches, but all churches, do a really bad job of doing ministry with and for people who are above the age of 18. But Why, why is that? Um, so to take a step back, <laughs> there's a big answer for this. Let's just moonwalk. <laughs> yeah, we'll moonwalk back a little bit. So um, the way we do church with younger folks is really defined, especially in our liberal and progressive churches, by things that were going on in the 1800s. Sunday school was basically school. There really wasn't too much of a difference in a lot of places. Mm. Um, and Sunday school was where kids learned to read. So that's why there's there was this heavy didactic classroom model. And it was assumed that if we taught, we would teach kids how to read, we would teach them how to read their Bible, and then they would become good and faithful Christians after that, uh, missing the step B where they like actually learn how to do church things. Now, in a lot of times, kids had to go to Sunday school and go to church. However, after about the, um, I think it started after the 1950s, um, we started putting Sunday school during church which meant that kids, many kids and youth wouldn't actually get the experience of going to church basically until the, after the age of 18, after we kicked them out of youth group. And, you know, they either went to a job or, you know, military or, you know, went to college. And basically they would have no experience in, like, in doing church. They would get there and be like, I have no idea what's going on. Why are these people talking? <laughs> I, I I just don't know because they would go to youth group during worship. Okay. I mean, is there a lot of like super interactive things going on during church that they couldn't just learn from like being in the building or being in the sanctuary while it was while well, service was I, happening? I mean, if you think about it, church is like, especially if we like the past 50 years, there is nothing else in our, that we do on a day-to-day -day basis that's really like church. Where a bunch of people who don't really know each other and who aren't related to each other all decide at a certain point, we're all just going to show up at this building somewhere. We're going to listen to either one person or a few people read some stuff out of a book that's 2,000 years old. And then we're going to sing some songs together. Who sings songs together anymore? I mean, if you're not at a concert, you're not really, people don't really sing songs all that together all that much. I mean... Reese is a choir just, person. Yeah, my just my apartment is a place where people sing. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but especially with people you don't know. Yeah. Um, and then you hear someone talk for twenty minutes, and it's really weird. And it's like, as I said, like nothing else we do. A lot of folks get to that age point and don't know how to connect with worship with our collective worship on Sunday morning. It's completely foreign to how they've experienced uh, going to church. Uh, through kids, often through very good youth group programs. So after that, the pattern in American life has been, um, and we're getting into some gender language here, so patriarchy alert. Patriarchy alert! Patriarchy alert! Is that, uh, I, I liked that. 
um, <laughs> is that um, – and the statistics bear this out a little bit in some ways. Um, men have tended to go to church less than women. Yep. Um, I think that's been true throughout a lot of American history. It's especially true now. So basically in the heteronormative family, um, when men and women get together through marriage especially, and especially after they have children – that is when women usually drag their husbands back to church. That used to be that that happened around 23, 24 in your hometown, <laughs> 18. <laughs> I mean, that's one of those things for me that I found everybody got married at 18. Um, but now that people are getting married later, in a lot of cases not getting married at all, that effect isn't happening. Um, so people aren't actually come. There's not a, a lot of folks in our uh, liberal and progressive churches in their 20s. Um, and 30s because um, nobody's like there there's just not people there so we're like oh there are two of you what are we going to do with you <laughs> here we're going to put you near each other maybe in a bar and then <laughs> people are astonished simply astonished when that doesn't really work out sometimes for an example um in First Unitarian Church of Dallas, which was a thousand people, a uh, thousand members. So many people. <laughs> I was, and this makes me sound really good. Um, I was <laughs> the only single straight male between the ages of like 22 and 30. Horrible. <laughs> yeah. So Shannon got a catch. She's <laughs> um, like, what's the phrase? Slim pickets. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, that was our moonwalk back, and now we're—I don't think you moonwalk forward, but I mean, you just turn around. We and turn around and we moonwalk back to the story. Yeah, I started working with in young adult ministry. I helped introduce, um, and Shannon helped too, something called pints and ponderings, which was basically um, we were like, oh, there's all these cool people who are kind of in the twenties, thirties, forties age range. Why don't we? all go to a bar together or some other eating establishment and hear what the cool stuff that each of them is doing. So we kind of, we basically set up miniature TED Talks people would give and we would have small group discussions then uh, about what people talked about. And that was our small group, our young adult ministry. Um, pretty cool program. Um, we would regularly have like 30 to 40 people who would come out. Um, as far as I know, the program is still going on oh cool. Uh, i don't know it's probably transformed in some way that is especially important to my narrative because sometime in the early summer of 2012 unitarian universalist association posted a job for a young adult ministries associate i applied to the job because i was kind of in a funk in my own job i took the whole summer to get through the interview process but mm. um i did i applied and got it and so shannon and i we had been dating at that point for four and a half months decided we were going to cast the dice and we moved up here to boston together um which was really nice because it was a paid move from <laughs> dallas to boston which would have been like i think the bill ended up being like seventy eight hundred dollars oh, to move wow <laughs> two full apart two furnished apartments up to up to the area. Mm. So um, so that job was really nice. Got me up here. 
Um, I lasted in it about six months before there were budget cuts, uh, 10% budget cuts across the, the board. And uh, I was the last in, so I was the first out. Uh, mm-hmm. During that time, there was a, a kind of a realization for me, a growing realization that I really wouldn't be happy on in whatever job I did if it wasn't going into the ministry um, and into the parish life. Why was that? Um, I knew that I would always be thinking about why I wasn't doing that, why I wasn't going into the ministry. Well, why why would you go into it? Why would you go into ministry? Um, Reverend. <laughs> yeah. Why would I go into ministry? So do you want that to be why did I go into ministry or why one would go into ministry? Why you would, and what was, you know, what was in you that would always be like, oh, why am I doing this instead of going toward ministry? Yeah, so I'll take that question and put it into two different parts. One will be why I wanted to go into the ministry, and one that would be the seed that would go into why I became a Christian minister specifically instead of a UU minister. Okay. So the first part is... um, when I was in Dallas, I learned to worship as a because I, I had no preconceptions about it. I had never been in youth group, uh, had very little experience with church. I learned to love um, the art and being in worship, and it, they did it very well there. Um, and then coming up here to Boston, honestly, a lot of worship kind of sucked. <laughs> like it was just terrible. Is that because maybe at least for? Like UU churches, there are so many up here, whereas in Dallas, like there probably was one huge one because there were fewer overall. So they had to make it better in Dallas because it was like. I think there was just a different ethos. Okay. Um, I don't know. I'm just making. No, no, (laughs) no, that's not a, that, that is true. Um, The, I mean, first you had a lot more resources. I mean, and that's, that's the truth of it. Um, they also had incredibly good and gifted ministers. They had incredibly good preaching and awesome music. Um, and just a lot, there was a lot going on and a lot of resources. Um, they were emotionally moving in a way that worship up here is often not. Um, it can be kind of like cold and professorial. Yeah. yeah um, and that's not to say that there aren't good UU ministers preaching in the Boston area. But there's certainly bad ones. <laughs> yes. Uh, and... Part of, I, I remember as a, the UU part of me said, I want to help, I want to help churches worship better, that there's not enough time in this world for bad worship. And one of my f- little philosophies of soundbite is if worship hasn't changed you, then what has church made you done, but made you an hour older and a few dollars out of your pocket poorer? Hopefully that's because you've given the collection plate. The the Christian part of me and the call to Christian ministry um, was because when I was working for the UUA uh, in Boston, um, the old headquarters were right next to the State House uh, on Beacon Street, so right across, uh, right on the Boston Commons, uh, across the Commons in the Episcopal Episcopal Cathedral, St. Paul's, um, which is notable for its Nautilus shell on the front of it. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Right across from Park Street Station. Yeah. There was, there is a uh, mostly young adult worshiping community called The Crossing. And um, I went there just to see what it was like. I had a very profound spiritual experience while I was there. Um, 
I had my first communion at the age of 25. It was served to me not by a priest, but by a, a, a queer youth who had just talked about her story um, of trying to reconcile with her mother after we had heard the, um, the, the Bible reading for that day was um, the story of the prodigal son. So she was able, she connected that directly to her own story. And then she was, um, this was just a person in, in the congregation who, um, because they serve communion in the round where one person passes it to the next, uh, she was the one who gave me communion. And that um, was a profoundly moving spiritual experience for me. Uh, it really connected uh, these ancient stories that people could connect them to their lives and that they were still relevant for today, uh, even though they were written so long ago. Um, and that caught me. Um, that's been a core of my my spiritual experience um, as a Christian um, since then. So those are kind of the two the two parts of that that uh, were uh, at the kind of at the center of my call to ministry. So I've had kind of a, a tricky relationship with churches um, before. Well, even now going to a UU church sometimes, but before I knew UUism existed, um, you know, getting invited to friends' churches, which were inevitably Christian and like taking a communion because I didn't know what to do. And I was like a frozen 13 year old and I was like, I'm, this is wrong and I feel dirty. So I kind of wanted to know about like your experience taking communion and like your emotional experience going to that church service and like how it does feel to like be in a space like that. Yeah. So, um, so I can't speak to your experience at all and I'm not going to try to, um, (laughs) I think it's very, I think there is a big difference coming into it as a 13 year old versus coming into it as a 25 year old. Mm -hmm emotionally i remember so there was the 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 way the structure of the services was that there was the the reading of the story of the prodigal son which um because i had done that curriculum on on jesus oh yeah the revolutionary as a as a revolutionary really um i knew a little bit about that story and some of its implications um but more from an academic sense of being able to teach the story to a bunch of skeptical sixth and seventh graders. Not really. um, I knew about the story. Let's put it that way. I, uh, I've, I've always been for the most part, the good kid. So I had never connected emotionally with the story and the way that, um, are you familiar with the story? Yeah, we need a little overview. Okay. So I'm very loose. So the story of the prodigal son is probably um, the second most famous of Jesus's parables. Um, Jesus mostly taught in stories that he would uh, that he would tell his followers, uh, his disciples. Um, this one appears in the Gospel of Luke, which is um, a Jedi. Yes. Um, <laughs> he, uh, the Gospel of Luke is the third gospel that's written, probably. Um, it was written um, for probably a mixed 
um, Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian audience, uh, which is different from Matthew and Mark, which were probably written for Jewish Christian audiences. Um, so when Jesus was first doing his ministry, uh, most of the people who followed him were originally Jews who believed that he was the Messiah. Uh, Luke is one of the first Gospels to really have a, an audience or to be born out of a community of folks where there were Christians who were um, Jewish and Christians who were not Jewish worshiping together. Uh, and some of that comes out in... There's a lot more language that's about the universality of Jesus as a figure for all of humanity rather than as a specific and special person for the Jews. Um, though one example is in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the, the genealogy goes back to King David, whereas in Luke, the genealogy, Jesus' genealogy goes back to Adam. I believe that's the case. You can edit that out if I'm wrong. <laughs> but I believe that's the case. Basically, in the um, Gospel of Luke, Jesus is a much more universal figure. Um, it's also okay. our social... Um, we also... I also like to call it the uh, social justice gospel. It's not... It doesn't have a sole claim on that title, of course, but there's a lot more concern for the material poor. The um, Beatitudes, for example, in Matthew, refer to the poor in spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, they refer to the poor. Blessed are the poor versus blessed are the poor in spirit. What is poor in spirit supposed to mean? It's actually a, a specific Jewish phrase. Um, so poor in spirit would have kind of gone together as one phrase that Jews would have been familiar with. And I believe it means... Um, and I might be wrong about this. I believe it means something to the point of those who have who are who have fallen into despair. Oh, okay. Or who are feeling pretty down, things like that. Okay, I'll have to look that up. But yeah. Um, <laughs> whereas the Gospel of Luke refers to the poor, um, just the poor. So, the the story of the prodigal son um, stars a father and his two sons an older son and a younger son and um, at the beginning of the story they're kind of all farming together and the younger son starts feeling some wanderlust so he persuades his father to take his inheritance or what would he wouldn't inherit um, after the father died to take that land sell it and then give the money to the younger son so he could start a new life somewhere else. Um, and my understanding is this would have been like a hugely scandalous thing in Israel for someone to have sold land like that. So it was basically that act of selling the land and giving the money to the younger son was basically a, a washing of the hands of like, and we're done. I've given you all that I can't like. I've given you all the resources that I would be able to give you. Because um, if you remember, land was directly tied to food and wealth in those days, being an agricultural society. 
Meanwhile, the older son just kind of works on the farm. Um, but so the younger son goes out into the world. Um, implied possibly he goes out east to maybe to what is today Iraq or Persia or something. Distant lands, I believe. And um, basically lives the life of a playboy. He um, does not invest his money well. He eats extravagant foods. Mm. Um, I don't, I mean, does other things. Um, wearing women's song, all that stuff. Um, lives a rapper's lifestyle. Um, or a rock star's lifestyle. The prodigal son is Fiddy <laughs> Basically. Although I think he's bankrupt now. <laughs> Shh. Don't worry, Fiddy. Um, <laughs> and... It eventually comes to the point where the guy is, this younger son is broke, and then there's a famine that hits. Um, and so he goes to work for someone, and remember, this guy is a Jew. Um, basically, the owner of the farm says, oh yeah, you can work for me, but you're going to have to eat out of the pig slop. Mm. And the guy's like, F this, <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> You know what? My father's ranch hands and farm hands did much better than this living because um, he saw them growing up and they were at least well fed. And so he starts going back um, and he's kind of thinking about all of this stuff. These, this younger son has this build up of like, what am I going to say to my father? What am I going to do? Is he going to accept me back? You know, you know. You know that thing where you start playing like the conversation out in your head before it happens? Yeah, like that never stops. Yeah. <laughs> so he's doing that about his reunion with his father and he's like, How am I gonna do this and make it work? Um and as he's coming down the road, he's in rags, um, the father runs out to him and gives him a hug and uh says basically, Welcome home. Um, let's have a party for you. Let's have a party. So they slaughter a cow and eat a cow. Uh, that was the older brother's favorite cow. <laughs> well, this is this is interesting. The the older brother is like, what the heck? I did everything you asked. I always of me. got straight A's, and I didn't get yeah the fifty that he gets for like wrecking the car. Right. Yeah. Um, what the heck? This is this is ridiculous. And the father says. I had one son and now I have two again. My love has never left you. Um, basically, get over yourself. Okay. I mean, I, I, I'm. Yeah, the. And we can go into there's a kind of a psychodrama here of the father's like, I have always loved you and I've always been here for you. Your life is good here. But think about I'd have a second son again. When I had thought that I had lost him. Um, and that's kind of where the story ends, is that speech. Um, so this woman at the crossing responds to it, talking about her, um, you know, that she had been kicked out by her parents. But this story gave her hope that there would be, that reconciliation was possible. Um, and that she would be able to um, eventually return home. Um, which she really wanted to do. 
and that was just one of the it was a, a really beautiful moment um, about the possibility of these ancient stories to give people hope um, so yeah it was emotionally complex you could say um, a lot of um, oh wow I feel if you've ever, ever had and I'm sure you've never had one of these moments where you're like oh that's what they were talking about or oh that's what all those people meant like a sudden realization mm-hmm. um well what was the connection for you there um the connection between this like that's why people still think the bible is important okay yeah yes all right <laughs> yeah i just need those adults sorry really strongly connected <laughs> yeah that is, that's why the bible is important why it matters um still matters so that got me down the path, uh, starting on that path of, of Christianity. Why do you think you ended up being being so um, drawn and connected to to worship in this way, as opposed to like other outlets, like artistic? I mean, not that I think you know. Yeah. I think anything is art. You know, anything is anything. Art is anything. But, <laughs> but like, why is, that in particular? Art is anything that is not immediately necessary for our survival. Mm. That's my definition. Um, yeah, you'll need to put parsley on that. That is purely yeah. decorative. Yes, it is. That is true. <laughs> uh, so a part of it is that, uh, and I didn't go over this, was uh, when I moved to Dallas, I was something like 19 hours away from my closest friends and family and worship and being in, uh, in church helped me overcome a lot of that loneliness, that intense Mm -hmm. loneliness that I was feeling there. Um, so a sense of belonging, uh, to something greater than myself. So that's part of, and that's, that's part of the feelings that I feel for it are born from that experience. I do have a question that will be fun to ask a reverend. Uh, do you ever ask, do you ever act as the devil on someone's shoulder? Hmm. <laughs> I think that depends on how we understand the devil. Oh, Jesus. I mean, like, so there's the two... devil versus angel. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's still, there's actually two different conceptions of the devil within the Bible um, that reflect a evolving um, cosmology. Um, the Jewish conception of um, or at least at one point, the Jewish conception of the devil um, was the Hasatan, Hasatan, um, is the accuser, um, and we all, and yeah, um, we only find him in the Book of Job, which is one of the great kind of masterpieces, in my opinion, of Western literature in general, because it basically. The part of the text which is probably most genuine, the last chapter is probably a later edition to make it turn it into the Disney version. But until that last chapter, basically the answer that, um, so the book of Job, uh, basically God has this council of heavenly angels and beings. And the Satan is basically the one who's the special prosecutor who, um, and it's like the devil's advocate type of thing um, comes from that 
that story, the book of Job. Uh, and Job basically asks God, so this guy, Job, he's supposed to be the best, you know, most righteous guy in the world. I wonder if he's only righteous because things are going well for him. And that role of someone who interrogates the truth, I hope I can, or the accepted status quo, I hope I could be that for some people. Um, who gets them to question uh, how things are going in their lives. I hope I can do that. The Christian and later conceptions of um, of Satan, of the devil, of being this um, basically the second half of a binary figure opposing all mm-hmm. good and light and all that things. I hope not. <laughs> um, I hope I don't leave lead people towards a path of um, suffering and separation from other people and from separation from God. I hope not. Do you think me asking this question of people involved in like religion as a profession and like philosophy loving people is just like a fool's errand because like I constructed a question based on like a cartoon version where it's just the devil is a playful imp urging you to eat a piece of cake like (laughs) right i mean it's not a fool's errand because it gets what it does is it gets to the nature of evil the problem of evil why does evil exist um what is the face of evil is evil um in the jewish conception of the devil um the, the Satan is clearly a subordinate force to God. Um, Satan is on God's payroll, um, so to speak, and has a specific role. Which emphasizes for me the um, almost the banal, the banal nature of evil, banal nature of evil, because it's something that exists within everything. Um, it's not this outside force seeking to corrupt you. It's a part of each and every one of us um, that seeks separation from each other, one another, um, the breaking of relationships, and um, the unwriting of uh, yeah, the unwriting of relationships. Whereas, if you see the the devil or Satan as this, um, you know, the second half of a binary second half of a dualist system with God at with God and light at one end and devil and darkness at the other end. That gives us a completely different uh, perspective on what evil is. Evil then exists as an outside force. Um, oh yeah, that's bullshit. Sorry. Yeah. Personal opinions. <laughs> yeah, but it does and that it's somehow um, and the, the danger in that cosmology is it puts it puts evil on the same level as and as good in okay. some way. Like, okay. I'm not a fan of dualism um, in general um, because it leads to to binaries that are often not helpful and false. Yeah. Do you think you've ever encouraged anyone to do something 
that's on the evil side? I mean, ever? Probably. <laughs> I mean, as I said, I used to be an internet atheist and libertarian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> did you ever play the devil's advocate on the internet? I'm sure I did. <laughs> if you used Probably that argued against universal health care or something oh like that. <laughs> I don't know if we were even talking about that in 2006. Mm, I mean... Someone probably was, but... Yeah, it seems likely. <laughs> I wasn't, so... What were you talking about in 2006? I have no idea, but I definitely went to atheistforums.com, I think, was the name of it. Well, direct? And right. was a Someone a got their 1299? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a very, like... We forget what the internet was like back in, like, pre-Facebook days mm. when people went to web forums. Web forums... Yeah, they still exist, and I'm like, this is beautiful and precious, and I need to read everything. Uh, what have you believed about yourselves, self, over your lifetime, and what are the beliefs you hold about who you are and who you should be? Mm. And, you know, how have some beliefs about yourself ruptured, and how have some been reinforced over time? Yeah, so one of the, um, one of the big moments or periods in my life uh, was when I first moved to Dallas for that job. Dallas! And I'm guessing you've heard of the two kind of, not different theories, but mechanisms of evolution. Um, Probably. Like, <laughs> if you think of... Evolution versus evolution? Well, like, yeah. evolution, like, Darwinism of, like, the gradual change over many generations that leads eventually to speciation and new species and things like that. And then there's um, someone else, a guy named... Um, Stephen Jay Gould, I believe, who mm -hmm. developed a theory called, so that sometimes that happens, but more more common is something called punctuated equilibrium, where basically um, a normal sense of normality would take place, and then something would literally puncture the equilibrium. Something would change in the environment, and then over a very short period of time, like um, a species would change dramatically to meet the new environment. So instead of gradualism, it's a like series of stability, stopping points, uh, radical change, the new stability. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, yeah. Would so, that work biologically or just like the social structure of like a group? Uh, he so this was first done as a biological okay uh, biological um, theory of human evolution um, as I am not a biologist but this is what I remember from like tenth grade biology oh I was sleeping I yeah was sleeping. Oh. <laughs> I mean I wish I had been um, it's pretty good nap time I still got uh, like a like a B <laughs> oh good for you. <laughs> um, but I was going to say those – so if you think of, like, the, the evolution line would be, like, a graph, like a simple line with a slight slope upwards going forever, whereas a punctuated equilibrium would be, like, a perpendicular line, like, kind of 90 degrees going along, going along, straight up mountain top, and then 90 degrees, 90 degrees, like a cliffside, basically. Okay. Um, and I think that applies to life too. Um, I've had, I believe, 
Although I have had moments of the gradual, kind of gradual change. Um, I've also had moments of and periods that were uh, where the environment changed quite a bit and therefore I changed quite a bit in response to it. Uh, and that time in Dallas was one. And that's where I really started to take control over my life in a way. Not like I had lost control, but more that I started to take responsibility and see that my actions had effect on people other than mm-hmm. myself. Yeah, you did mention agency before we started recording, like three days ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was in that time period um, that I started to to realize that what I did had an effect on other people and that things mattered. What I did mattered. Why, why do you think you didn't have that sense or as strongly have that sense before that? Um, I had spent most of my life before that, honestly, in school. That makes sense. <laughs> and in school, it's really easy to think nothing I do really matters. Yeah, I'm just like a cog in the greater system in a way that doesn't change the system. And especially after you do, you know, however many years of schooling and, uh, you know, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and then you're unemployed for nine months. It's like, why did I just do all of that? (laughs) And then when you get a job and it's nothing like, um, it's nothing like you thought it would be. So, uh, yeah. So it it was in that point that I, in that period, uh, before I went to church, actually, that, um, got me to start taking ownership of my of my own life um, that's the biggest thing what was that like did you have any like particular struggles on on that end owning certain things you you tended to do and trying to change course in some way or yeah i mean um i won't get into specifics um too much but um you know, I had for a, for too long, and, and not a super bad thing, but, you know, I had had some bad encounters with hard liquors. Um, so it makes them so hard. <laughs> yes. And uh, I started having a better relationship. And now I, I mean, I can, I have a, I, I think a relatively he- a relatively healthy relationship with alcohol now. Um, I only drink with other people. I, I don't really drink alone. Mm. Um, I don't drink to excess anymore. Um, or if I do, it's like the once or twice a year that I'm with my family and we're all kind of getting drunk together and we're having a good time and having fun. Mm. So... I didn't really realize that's how people treated alcohol until I was an adult. And so whenever we would go up to um, go up to visit my extended family and everyone be super drunk all the time. uh, I was like, this is so like, I don't know what's the word. It's like unattractive as humans that everyone's drunk all the time. I didn't realize for like decades, you know, until the last few years, like, oh, they were drinking because they were celebrating they were seeing my mother again their sister mm. you know their daughter their cousin and i was like oh this is how they express happiness and also i find it really gross <laughs> so so in that case how do you express happiness 
um, poorly, apparently, <laughs> in the way other people, like, don't realize I'm happy because I still have to edge everything with, like, neg- like, like somewhat negative or critical comments to let people know that I'm not dumb for being really happy. So to turn the tables on you, why do you associate <laughs> happiness with dumbness? Because I feel like there has I feel like there is a lot of duality that bothers the fuck out of me. And it's like, where if you're, it's, yeah. Okay. Well, let's put, (laughs) actually, let's put it. So let's back up a uh, a second. Moonwalk? Yeah, we'll moonwalk a second. (laughs) How do you see the universe functioning? Mm. Like, how does the universe function? Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure how to answer it, but I don't know. I guess when I, just thinking of that, or, you know, responding, uh, immediately, instinctually to that question, um, I feel like it functions with a like a half conscious grace. Hmm. That's an um, interesting phrase. Yeah. I think I probably word it like that because I, because like being inside of yourself, be, me being inside of me, mm-hmm. me being me and like me knowing me the best versus any other like topic in the outside world or any other person or the universe at large. Like it's like, it's so easy to feel out of step that I imagine like literally mm. like the, the way the natural quote unquote way of being for the entire universe is to be what I feel like I don't have Mm. semi-conscious grace where I feel like I'm super conscious and can't manage to stay graceful for more than five seconds. So sorry to moonwalk again. (laughs) What do you mean by grace? Um, Because I'm hearing two different definitions. Not being grace is not being I guess when I say grace, I usually mean, like, like similar to, like, dancing, physical. Okay. Physical and, like, social grace. Um, not, like, Jesus grace, you know? Well, like, fluidity of movement, <laughs> yes, basically. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, fluid, not bumping into things, not having to go, okay. like, oh, you're walking here, I'm walking here, we have to do the weird little dance. Well, I, I only say that because I just... Uh, this first worship service this even sunday evening worship service that we had the topic was grace and we actually did worked with a definition okay which was um the unmerited gift of god's transforming love which has which is responded to by faithfulness the unmerited so unmerited means that there's nothing you can do to get more of it and there's nothing you can do to get less of it Okay. It just, it's like a, it's like sunlight. Yeah. It, it's not like possible to earn it. It's just, yeah. it is present. It's there. The human agency part of it is that as your response to it. Okay. Um, so when you said semi-conscious grace, that's where my, the wheels in my head were going like, oh, that's a really interesting way or way of thinking about that. How how does does that definition fit into 
your explanation at all or no? I have to think. There were so many words in the definition. Sorry. So, <laughs> so, so when you said semi-conscious, do you mean that there is that the universe is semi-conscious, or that? Yeah, I guess so. Or like, is it like some sort of deistic like thing? When or? I thought of like the planets moving, mm-hmm. that I felt like that was that is semi-conscious for whatever. I don't know why I think that, but it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like. Like, oh, they're, like, maybe, like, a little bit asleep or, or like, mostly asleep, but they are still, there's something spirited, inspirited, mm-hmm. you know, in, in them somehow. It's my, my instinct when I think of planets. <laughs> I mean, I believe in a guy who died and was three days later resurrected, so your beliefs yeah, are not any got problems. than <laughs> anything else. This is a judgment-free zone. <laughs> I mean, I eat his blood and body, like, once a month. Mm. Is he Yummy. tasty? What do we know? We can't know what type we, of we blood call that Jesus communion. <laughs> it was type Joseph better Joseph yeah. Jesus yeah. better have been O negative probably like he is supposed to be a universal donor. Come on. <laughs> I mean that's what we we have in common me and me and Jesus. Um, I, I asked the question about the 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 nature of the universe because at least for me as well, and this will be a good thing for um to think about is that i i have found that someone's ontology which is what they think of the nature of the universe of the nature of being itself has a great effect actually psychologically on how they relate to other people and how they think about the world at large Hmm. so someone who is what's called a, a monist or someone who believes that everything is one but temporarily separated might see things in relationship to themselves as just temporarily separated like to put it in a a um, more salty term would be like our meat sacks will eventually merge in the ground thank goodness (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding but but that um but like the 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 more potent example is a dualist who divides the world into good and bad, light and dark. Um, the Gnostics would divide it into the physical and the spiritual, um, putting everything physical as bad and everything spiritual as good. Um, it's like thirteen year old Teresa is very guilty. <laughs> yeah, um, like that has a profound effect on what you on how you see other people, how you see yourself, how you see the universe. Part of why I am a Trinitarian Christian and not a Unitarian Christian is um, one of the things that's inherent in the Trinitarian nature of God, as I understand it, is um, relationships and that the universe is grounded in Mm. um, webs of interdependent relationships. Yeah, And and that's represented through the the three. Through the three and, yeah, the Trinity, which is... um, it's the the trinity is one of those things where if you think you really understand it you probably don't yeah that's right (laughs) but um that's been that was been really helpful for me for um when i learned about that and taking a lot of stuff that i kind of already believed and putting it into con into a greater context for myself it pulled together a lot of disparate 
things that I was believing and put them made them put them into a web of interconnectedness, um, which made it made it stronger. Hmm. If that makes sense. That's interesting. Um, it reminds me of um, whenever I was like new to the internet and it was about I guess it was about 11 and um, this girl in my class one of my classes talked about being a witch and I was like that's cool let me look this up on the internet like on Friday night after you know Sabrina the teenage witch is you know (laughs) done Um, (laughs) did you know that she's a republican Oh, really? Yeah, Melissa Joan Hart's like a super Republican. It's really sad. Mm, she right, she was look. a teenage crush for me. Melissa, you could have done so good. You look so good in those jackets and those jeans and the beginning credits. Sorry. <sighs> Poor Salem. All right. <laughs> Back to your story. <laughs> but yeah, I like, that's how I, I looked up. I found um, Wicca and paganism, neo-paganism as a whole. And whenever I found out about that, I was like, oh, this is exists. There's a word for like 14 of the things I already believe. <laughs> it's like it's a helpful grouping. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I ever felt like it was like, I mean, kind of connected. Like it was connecting a bunch of things I thought already, you know, under an umbrella and some connected to each other. But I didn't feel like, I don't necessarily know if I've ever felt like a sense of cohesion. Mm. Um, with these things and that's why it's been kind of like easy to for the most part abandon you know (laughs) not pay any attention to that part of my life Mm. um, for you know forever (laughs) so something I've heard about people who practice rituals and spells and magic type things is that, or at least historically, that it gave people a sense of power um, that they felt as though, especially in really ancient in ancient times, that it you know, if you sprinkle the if you make a a circle out of mashed up leaves and then give a kiss on a baby's forehead, it's more likely to yep. live or something like I don't know. I don't want to help a baby. <laughs> well, yes, it's not the crushed up leaves; it's the baby. For you, I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, did you find that to be true? Like, did you, when you were doing those things, did you find I, yourself? I didn't do any rituals. Well, okay. I did do some rituals, um, never with other people, which I felt like I wanted to try. But also I was like, well, what if, you know, first it was like, what if I'm like, I'm the f- baby bird, fluffy bunny pagan who just like is, you know, doe-eyed and weird and then later as i like ended the teenage years i was like uh these like 14 year olds calling themselves wiccans make me really want to distance myself (laughs) so (laughs) well it's like with christians the worst thing about christianity is other christians yeah that sounds right (laughs) i mean that's always the thing you know hell is other people and so is the earth um (laughs) so i will tell my only good really good um witchcraft related story considering it's also october you only have one yeah i only have one really good one but um so i did something called clinical pastoral education which is basically a hospital chaplaincy internship i did that last summer in at saint vincent's hospital in worcester and the group was me one of my very close friends 
um, who's a now a UU minister, a Mormon woman, and two African Roman Catholic priests, one from Ghana and one from Nigeria. And their stories of these uh, African Roman Catholic priests were fascinating because they were in a operating in a um, religious world that is completely foreign to our own. Um, usually Westerners, when we encounter other religions, we basically think that they're not true mm. and that there's no power in them. Like when most people who are not practice practitioners of witchcraft think about think about Wicca or whatever, they're like, oh, that's a bunch of teenage kids doing dumb things. I mean, sometimes it is, but... Well, yes. Um, for these particular priests, um, basically, there was a very real... And these were these these two men were both educated, at least college educated. Um, they were studying for master's degrees at Boston College. Um, so they're not dumb in any sense. I wanted to put that out there. Um, they said that there were certain folks that they did not want to cross because there was a particular mm -hmm. curse of the, I think it was called the river, where if you saw a river in your dreams, it meant that you would die within a certain, like a few days. And that they, when this came up, um, the other, I forget who said, who told the story, the other person was just like nodding, like, yeah, that's what happens. You don't piss off the local witch doctor because if they put the, this river curse on you, you will die within a few days. But if you like just happen to see a river and you didn't piss anyone off, you're fine. <laughs> well, no, no, it's, well, it's the river in your dreams, I should say. Well, yeah, I was like, that's what I. Yeah. I have a very bad reaction, which makes me like I love Halloween and spooky stories, but also I immediately believe everything is true for at least like two yeah. days. So, <laughs> well, no, and that like, and I don't know, you know, me being Western liberal scientist, having some science education, like. You know, I immediately go into skeptical mode about it, but they had stories about, like, someone gets a stroke after a couple of days, or they drown, or something like that. Um, I don't know the mechanism of it. I don't know if somebody just, like, after the stress of all of, of being cursed like that and not being able to lift it somehow affected someone who was on the edge of, you know, dying anyway. You know, kind of push them over the edge. Um, but I, I do know that for them, at least, and in that context, that it was that that magic and had power and was true. Now, of course, we didn't hear all the stories about when that happened, and the person just walked away fine and didn't die for twenty five years. But there was a certain sense that there was truth and power behind what was going on. So that's my witchcraft story. Okay. <laughs> it's not like... And I'm like And then I saw a river in my dreams. What if I dream dreams? about a river today, like tonight because you told me this story <laughs> and I don't get to turn I would, 30? I would... <laughs> I'm um, so mad. I would get your living documents in order. <laughs> Gotta pick people to haunt. Uh, wait, it wouldn't be Reese? Uh, well, yeah. I assume it's like a list of like 10 people. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the ghost bureaucracy. I've heard theories. And the so when I said about the ontology thing, um, 
the ancient Chinese living in this world, like heavily bureaucratized state, which they did, um, like the bureaucracy of highly complex, their heaven actually had a bureaucracy too. And good officials would eventually move up. And when you got to heaven, you would get another job in the heavenly bureaucracy. So just as like their being of the universe was that it was this highly ordered state. So too was down. That's how they saw the earth functioning too. I mean, I kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense because, well, yeah, I guess people theories of the afterlife where it looks a lot like our current life makes sense. Cause it's like, you can't really imagine something radically different outside of like what we know from this world and from being in a physical form and from yeah. being in the society that we're used to being in. So to think of something like so unknown, we are all going to be goats, loose consciousness goats. <laughs> are we going to be like the screaming fainting kind or like regular? Yes. And people Some will post you, screaming hell is that we're posted on YouTube. I mean, I like attention though. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be a YouTube video with zero views. I'm sad now. I'm a sad goat. <laughs> sad goats. Sad, dead person goat. So, do you have other questions for me, or, or are you feeling? Yeah, we got stuff. Okay. Oh, what are some realizations or epiphanies you've had about yourself or your nature, your tendencies, your reactions? Um, lots of options here. <laughs> yeah. So this would actually go into the fact that I was an atheist libertarian. Um, let's get into the true cool. darkness yeah I know. <laughs> um, and nothing specifically wrong with people who are actually atheists i love you sam but i was one of those sorts um i've become a much better person and i made a conscious choice to become a better person and i so i think that that is eventually possible for people to choose and work at becoming better yeah um, and i think that's a, a realization because it's really easy to just think that people can never change. Um, and in a certain sense, like I did, I've never changed from like an extrovert or into an extrovert, for example. Um, I've never been good at geometry and I will probably until I die be not good at geometry, but you can emphasize certain portions of yourself. Yeah. Um, I'm actually a very decent listener. I That's mean, a skill. I hope so. <laughs> it's like, doesn't your new job require that? <laughs> yeah, it, it does. <laughs> but it's not something that we uh, celebrate in society. Oh, it's not? Okay. Being a good listener. I mean, it's like the role I've had to take most of my life, so I didn't really. Yeah. So I will put this this way. In patriarchy alert. Patriarchy alert. Men are supposed to be these active. Um, men aren't supposed to care what other people think. You're the Lone Ranger Marlboro man. <laughs> Ew. Dying of cancer. Because <laughs> he did die of cancer. Yeah. I'm glad you said it before I was going to. <laughs> yeah. Um, and men are socially conditioned not to listen. Oh. Oh. That makes a lot of things make sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not saying that I'm perfect. I love you, Shannon. But um, 
one of the things that helped me so much as a practice was pausing after people were done speaking, even if for like half a half a beat helped slow me down a lot. And sometimes I don't do it, but I really try to do it. And I find that most of the times when I, when the, the switch in my head goes like, I need to start listening, I just go into it smoothly and it's not a problem. Does that make sense? You're looking at me funny. It got a little lost toward the end. So we okay. About the switch. So <laughs> when I realize that someone needs to be heard. Okay. What do you think um, triggers you realizing that they need to be heard? Probably a combination of verbal and nonverbal cues. Yeah, um, like if their there's tone a lot of, yeah, goes a certain way. Tone, um, tension in their voice, anxiety. If there's, if I can sense a lot of anxiety, um, facial okay. expressions like escalating emotion in some form. Usually, or even just present emotion that. Okay. Some people yeah. are very good at hiding what they're feeling, but usually will let slip something at some point. Um, okay. If you've been in New England a while, you'll, you know, hear about, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. And it's not actually true. I mean, is that true anywhere? I mean, I feel like it's just a thing. <laughs> I think in New England, people are a little bit more closed off than being in the South. That's been my experience. Okay. Well, I guess I feel like people in the South, or at least like where I would, you know, spent my time in the South, um, it was more like people, you have to say something positive. I'm fine is like more neutral. And I'm like, that works But to get through your life, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, well, I don't know. I always had a tough time because I was always, I was, I just became the person who occasionally had been like, oh, it's a terrible day. And then I'd smile and leave. <laughs> yes. Uh, dear listener, you should see Teresa smile as she says, I'm having a terrible day. <laughs> There's nothing in my eyes. <laughs> the light is gone. <laughs> and I don't know if this is a, a bias, but I've, my experience of people from the South, and maybe it's because they go to church more often or more likely to show emotion. They might not tell you the truth about what they're feeling, but they will show something. Mm. Here, people will tell you the truth, but they might not say anything. They might tell you the truth, but they won't say anything? Um, if they know you well, they might say something. Okay. And if they do, it's like more likely to be true. Versus in the South, where there's that facade. I feel like the facade is stronger in the South. Mm. So like, even if you're talking to someone that you're really like close-ish to... You might still keep up the facade more. Yeah. Especially after some sort of like... Of like, things are going great. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Versus up here, I feel like it's harder to get to that point. But once you do, people are like, oh, actually, I'm having a really shitty day. Hmm. And I don't know if that's just, if that's just because I'm running in different circles. Yeah. Or you talk to like more that. people in general. Most people talk to more people than I do. But yeah. So, uh, like, that sounds... Yeah. I was like, that sounds like another reason. Like, of course I moved up here. <laughs> and I mean, there's good sides and bad sides. There's so much energy yeah. required in being in, like, being a bless your heart lady. 
that I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with that. I'm going Which is to the funniest north. phrase in the world. <laughs> to, I will un- unleash that on a on a Yankee on occasion. Oh, bless your heart. Oh, gosh. They're trying so hard. <laughs> <laughs> tiny, tiny daggers in my gut. Oh, bless her heart. She's just trying so hard, but you know she can't do that. <laughs> oh, what's something that you've um, you've learned about yourself through your your relationships with other people? I learned that sometimes um, if I really care about a group of people, I can sometimes be the act as kind of a social glue that holds a group together. Um, not that I'm like the active leader of the group, but as a quiet presence that sometimes I can make people feel mm. more welcome in a group. Yeah, so if like... <laughs> if I'm being very quiet, cause I usually am in a group that like you would engage me and, you know, give right. me a talk. Try not to let anyone get too far out of the circle of like what's going on. Except if I think that they really don't like, if I saw you and you looked really tired and didn't feel like engaging, or if I got <laughs> certain social cues that you, Teresa did not want to engage. I would leave you alone, but if there were opportunities to engage you and you looked like you wanted to be engaged, at least that's what I try to do. Okay. I don't know if that's been your experience of me or not, but... Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Okay. I was like, oh, that makes sense. (laughs) That's um, especially true of my fourth ed D&D group. You have so many D&D groups. I do have far too many D&D groups. (laughs) How do you manage that? uh, I work part-time. How do you feel like different parts of yourself emerge in the different groups that you're in? Yeah. So some parts of me are relatively constant. Um, I think I have a kind of a set core of, of a few different personality traits, which are relatively constant. There are some things that I let loose in some contexts rather than, and, than others. For example, something that most people don't get to see is... Uh, and Shannon's the only one who really gets to see it, is I'm actually really, really silly sometimes. Um, Whereas people at church might think I'm, like, really serious. So... Do you want some chili? No, thanks. Okay. Would you like a hug? Another hug. (gasps) Recorded hugs, my favorite. Oh, that's that's a man hug. Man hug! We talk, we've had two patriarchy alerts. Uh-oh. Patriarchy alert. Patriarchy alert. I think that needs to become a thing. <laughs> Every time Donald Trump oh. But the, the best analogy I have for it is I'm the same person whether I'm wearing a bathing suit or a three-piece suit. Um, what are the three pieces? Of three so that's a, a jacket. A vest and and slacks and pants. Does the vest go on 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 the outside of the jacket? No, under inside? under the jacket on top of the shirt. Okay, all right. Just information. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a good question. It's one of those things. Um, men's fashion isn't really explained to, mm-hmm. or at least it wasn't explained to me. Um, I had to learn about it kind of on the fly, um, which is a kind of terrible way to learn about these things. Because um, that usually means trying to get a job. <laughs> right. It's very helpful. Um, and now, like, 
10 years into wearing suits regularly. I now know a tiny bit, but I was never formally taught anything, which apparently some people were, so. How? I mean, there's got to be a way. Well, I mean, it's basically someone took you suit shopping. Oh, fancy. And, and we're like, this is what you're looking for. This is how you, your suit should be cut. Um, you know, so you don't look like, like a giant boxer that you're wearing super saggy pants or baggy pants. Those sorts of things. Fancy people telling you what clothes are. Would you say it's fancy pants? Yes. <laughs> Have you made any conscious decisions to, like, emphasize different parts of yourselves in different... Besides, like, the work social divides, like... I'm... Yeah. Um, so the work social divides are pretty big. Yeah. But other than that, um, I try to be a more responsive person to Shannon. That's hard um, to kind of stop some of my bad habits like leaving the milk out leaving the cereal out things like that Um, (laughs) i try i'm i don't do it as anywhere near as much as i used to so there's some conscious decisions like that to be a little bit more um i don't even know what the word is mindful Hmm. of my physical space my apartment is still really messy though I have a question here that I don't think I've actually asked anybody. Um, how do you get in your own way? Ooh. <laughs> Intense. <laughs> no. Um, I have quite a bit of anxiety. Um, and that's anxiety, if you've ever dealt with it, is really, really good at getting in your, in your own way. True facts. Um You know, I work myself up about sending this email and I somehow, you know, or setting up a meeting and like I, or, oh God, even worse, calling someone. Oh my God. Phone calling someone. And it's like, I get like, my hands are fluttering right now. Like, oh my God, I have to call someone and talk to another human being on the phone. I hate that. I had to call like my, my health insurance on Monday and I was so glad to get, like, the automated system. But then I was, like, I went through the entire automated system. And I'm, like, my question is not answered anywhere here. I have to talk to a human. But I couldn't find a human. It's like, oh, this geez. is the only time I've wanted to find a human <laughs> through an automated phone system. <laughs> so, I mean, that, yeah. That's, like, the biggest thing for me. And then, like, I actually do the thing. And it's perfectly fine. Like, the meetings go well. The email doesn't end up killing me. The phone call isn't terrible. The day like, an email kills you. Like, the person is okay, like, to talk to it as an actual human being. Sorry, robots. But, like, that's usually been my experience. But I still, like, work myself up over it. Um, so this is called The Worst Person in the Room. Have you ever, slash, do you ever feel like the worst person in the room? And Why? Oh yeah, so when I when I was having that time and um, right as I was getting my first remember that job in Dallas, I like basically I was like, would I if I met myself would I want to be my friend? And I said no. (laughs) Damn. So that was part of my conscious decision to like be a better person. (laughs) So uh, yes, I have felt like the worst person in the room. 
but I got better. <laughs> I mean, how, how, okay. You said you wouldn't want to be your friend. What things made you not want to be your own friend? Um, cause I was a bit of an asshole. Okay. Um, I, as I said, I didn't really have a sense that my words and actions had an effect on other people. Oh, yeah. So I would sometimes say things that were, um, not racist, but just mean and not, and like think it was funny think it like the asshole joking thing that's so popular now yeah like i still haven't completely outgrown that which is unfortunate for me yeah um so um just a lot of immature type of behavior that i most behavior is set and strengthened by habits yeah so those were habits that i had to break over a, a little bit of a period of time but um yeah. The more like consistently you do that, you change your behavior, you know, it, uh, it, it starts to feel like instinct. It starts to feel right. Like a normal, a normal thing. Um, reflex. Right. I like chose to become more optimistic after, um, a kid a kid I didn't know. Wait, so how old were you? I, I was 13. So many things happened when I was 13. Seventh grade. So, okay, I was on um, Moonwalk. Um, I was on the questionably large staff of the, um, the like, monthly newsletter or something that came out in my junior high school. And um, during December, the month of December, I had Poets Corner. So I wrote, a, you know, like a winter-themed poem and it was all about like walking home in like wet snow and sludge and nasty assness um <laughs> in north carolina uh in pa oh okay. this is when we lived in um i lived in western pa for like three years okay and um so that was my that was my poet's corner but somebody else had a poet's corner that month too and he wrote a poem that was like all about like the warmth of the holidays and like look, looking into like <laughs> like houses where everything's decorated all nice and there's candles in the window and you feel like warm and fuzzy in your soul and there are cranberries and stuff and you know family love and whatever and togetherness and and um whenever so <laughs> you have that nice contrast and then um after we got back from back to school after winter break, um, they they gave an announcement that that kid had died. Oh Jesus! Um, wow. And I don't really know how he died, but at some point in the next like month or two, I was talking to one of my friends, and she made a reference to him in a way that sounded like he had take taken his own life. Oh wow! So I'm like, I don't know if that's remotely true, but that's kind of what you know how I ended up incorporating it in my mind. And so I went back, I like, you know, went back in my files to find his, um, the stuff that he'd written, his poem in Poets Corner that, that December. And, you know, reading that over and, and comparing it to mine, I'm being like, I am like, my mind is like celebrating the misery of the season <laughs> and like how my shoes are crappy and my socks get wet when I'm going home. And, and, you know, this person who is like, who is my age and now dead 
was so like saw this better side who like thought of you know december as a as this basically as this time for warmth and stuff and and i don't know what he was really feeling because you know a poem doesn't actually like necessarily it's not a one-to-one representation the way a lot of times my my things are but (laughs) people who are more talented (laughs) um might not have that but um you know i was 13 so don't be too hard on myself but yeah after that i was like i need to you know like i thought of my poem as like very pessimistic and his is very optimistic and i'm like i you know it's like i'm still alive and I made this, and I'm representing this in the world, and putting this more into the world. And he put this like nice thing into the world, and now he's fucking dead. And I didn't know him at all, but you know he's fucking dead. So I was like, okay, I, you know, I started to make really conscious, deliberate, daily decisions to to basically like reroute myself in my my reactions to things to make them more optimistic and it worked really fucking well like by the time i was 16 i was like i just thought of myself as an optimist like i remembered why it happened but i didn't have to do the conscious Mm -hmm. thing anymore it was just like it felt like it was part of my wiring by that point um and then i got a i got kind of unwired i think (laughs) a few years later uh, the age of 19 is a fun time, guys. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I forgot why I started telling this story. But <laughs> Because it's a part of you that you consciously changed. Uh, yeah. So, what, what I'm hearing okay. in your story as um, not, not a question of misery and optimism but a but shades of um what experience is matching your reality or when an experience matches reality because i'm guessing boots in muddy snow was something that you had lived through in the winter did you feel that the happiness of the holidays the as you said the family love or whatever was something that you actually experienced or was that something that felt foreign uh no it feels really foreign i i have a really hard time like you know i've always had a pretty hard time uh, feeling happy about and around christmas um because yeah it was a thing that just you know like, I couldn't give back because, you know, I was, with, like, you know, I'd be, like, 11 years old and, and like, I guess I might as well, like, give people a long list of options of things they could buy for me. But I don't have any money because I'm 11 and I can't, I'm, like, and, you know, I can't give anything. I literally cannot, like, buy anything to give back to, like, my mother or, or you know, my grandma. Like, I can't give anybody anything and so it's awful and like one year my mother like didn't receive anything including from my dad for christmas and she like came downstairs and she was crying and so i made her like i went upstairs and made her like a 
a um a necklace with like it was like a bell with a piece of yarn strung through it i'm like i didn't have a lot of resources you know (laughs) but yeah it was just like i felt very disconnected from the sense of like emotional warmth and love that like i was supposed to feel always and then you know around the age of 11 like economic imbalance Mm -hmm. feelings you know came up so i'm like i just like i'm not like that's not a thing (laughs) so i'm more about the weather (laughs) uh does so in your relationships today do you feel as though a relationship is only good when you give i mean yeah right I mean, obviously it doesn't have to be like, you know, gift, gift, but, you know. Or or I guess the other question is, do you feel like an existential terror ever of becoming your mother and not getting anything for Christmas? Because that is something that I know if I saw that, that would stay with me and like haunt (laughs) my dreams. I mean, it definitely stays with me and haunts my dreams. Obviously. I do think I have an existential terror of becoming my mother. Not for that reason, but I think that is, like, representative of, like, you know, giver to the extreme. Right. In not receiving and, yeah, and not being nourished. Mm. Yeah, but making sure that other people are. That's that's really that's very terrifying. <laughs> do, do you think of yourself as a nourishing person now? Uh, no. <laughs> do you wish you were? Um, yeah. Although I feel like it's questionable motivation. Though it's like, oh, I'm, you know, it'd be better if I was a more nourishing person because then people will like be sad when I die and. Mm and like will really want me around and embrace my inclusion in social events and stuff instead of me just like kind of being there (laughs) but um yeah i feel like that's like the main motivation of like but it's i know it's it's just not a strong enough motivation for me to actually acted it out or at least not in the way that I think of myself as nourishing. Do you, are you nourishing to Reese? I, I am questionable. <laughs> I don't feel like I am enough. I, you know, do conscious efforts to try to be more nourishing in the way that he receives. Mm-hmm. That you know, instead of just like the way that I would receive. Right. All right. You want to give uh, give the people. One last answer. What do you really like about yourself that most people wouldn't necessarily know? Um, I'm super silly and creative when okay. I'm in the right when I'm in the right social context and I'm allowed to be. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for talking with me and recording, trapping your your essence into my Mac. Great, a little bit of my soul is in there now. Perfect. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Worst Person in the Room. If you were confused about maybe 20 minutes ago in the recording, if you listened all this way, 
Um, I left in the part where Reese comes home or he had come home and I offered him chili and then he and Shane hug audibly on the mic. Uh, <laughs> the mic can pick up a hug. That's how strong the love is. <laughs> I thought it would be funny to include that because later I say that I don't feel like I'm nourishing to Reese. And then like 10 minutes before I had actually just like offered him food. <laughs> show business you can follow the worst person in the room podcast on twitter or facebook both at worst person pod and you can subscribe through itunes or stitcher or we're on tune in too and tune in as well and some other places i'm sure i'm Teresa francesca your host and this has been the worst person in the room